there is a doctrinal statement issued by Global University that is identical to the doctrinal statement of the Assemblies of God. Fundamental truth number one says the Bible is the inspired and only infallible and authoritative word of God. Now, anybody in this room, have you taken my membership class? Yes, Lori took my membership class. As a part of that class, we go through the 16 fundamental truths. But the number one truth in the 16 fundamental truths is the Bible is the inspired and only infallible and authoritative word of God. Now, I'm going to read that one more time and listen carefully because I want you to pick out the key terms in this statement. And we're going to focus on these key terms tonight so we can understand exactly what is this statement saying. So here it is again. The Bible is the inspired and the only infallible and authoritative word of God. Now, feedback to me. What are the significant terms? Only. Only, only. infallible. Only infallible. So it's the only infallible. Right. Okay. Very yeah. good. And we're going to have to tell you <clears throat> what infallible means in order mm -hmm. to really unpack that statement, too. Mm -hmm. well, did you have any other significant terms in inspired. that statement? Inspired. Okay. Mm -hmm. And anybody else have another one? How about the Bible itself? Okay, the, the, the word Bible. <laughs> Very significant. That's the subject matter, isn't it? Yeah. And anybody else? It's one more. It started with A. What was it? Uh, Authoritative? Yes. Authoritative. Let me hand out these study guides. Just take one and pass it around. And let's take those terms and let's see what's behind that. The first term we come to, of course, we've, we've said the Bible is, is a very significant term in this statement, but to describe the Bible, it's inspired. What does inspired mean? As much as we feel like we connect with that and agree with it, do we find it equally easy to translate that into terms somebody else can understand what it means. What does it mean? How do we find that? Somebody want to take a, a stab at that, or are you going to pass? <laughs> pass or play? Well, the, uh, the, the idea that it's not man-made. Man didn't think it up all by himself. Okay, that, okay, we're starting with a good working definition here. Inspired to you means we're attributing this to somebody other than man, something other than man. Man didn't make it up. That's a very good start on inspired. And what scripture can we point to that verifies the inspiration? Second, was it Second Timothy 3.16? The 3.16, very good, yes. So the scripture is declaring itself to be inspired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Although at that point, when Paul wrote that letter, he was talking about all scripture. Was he, was, he, was he just referring to the Old Testament, or was he referring to all his letters, or the gospel? How broad is the scope of that inspiration? Yeah, if you, if you look at the context of what Paul was talking about, it's probably at least the Old Testament. But And then later this, on... This, this is what Paul intended, but what God intended that it would be that the entire Bible... <clears throat> Yeah, because it's really we're not we're not we don't look at it in the in the human author's 
Well, what we do, I mean, we, we look at what the human author intended it to say, and then we look at what God intended it to say, because a lot of times it's two different things. Yeah, okay, so what, what does the word canon mean to everybody? It's a big gun type of thing. <laughs> 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 you know, the, the Words like official, um, approved. With respect to the canon of Scripture. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I, I think, the same thing. The... Um, you know, when uh, we decided, when I say we, humans, decided that certain books would be Scripture and other books would not be Scripture. The ones that we decided would be Scripture, those are canon. Okay. Can yeah, canon and, and what was the basis of their deciding which would and which would not be? Though which was the Word of God? What did they use as a standard to measure this one belongs, this one doesn't? I think some of the things were, did it, did it, um, was it consistent with Old Testament? Did it point to Christ? Um, well, there were a lot of things mm -hmm. that went into it, and certainly mm -hmm. we wouldn't expect this group tonight mm -hmm. to be authorities. I think a lot of it was who wrote it and when. When was, was, was important. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you hear a lot of these, you know, Discover this 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 lost gospel. You lost know, and gospel, why isn't yeah. it true? Why why are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John okay when the gospel of Joe Blow or the gospel of suppose the gospel of Peter or whatever else isn't so? Yeah. Well, you find out that you know these other gospels were written to maybe about 200 or 250 A.D. as opposed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or all. Okay, so in, in a sense, in a sense, uh, it was contained within certain dates, yeah. but they were also looking definitely at the element in, of inspiration. Mm -hmm, yeah. Some of these were just writings. Some of them were. Just, some of these were just history. Some of them uh, were unbelievable in their content. Uh, some of them contained spurious doctrine, and there was a lot of tests that went into this. But one of these things was this inspired. But we haven't quite put our, wrapped our brains around inspired yet. So we're still, still struggling with that. So in the Second Timothy 3.16, uh, all scriptures inspired. It, maybe you've been in Christian work long enough uh, or, or uh, classes uh, as a teacher, as a student uh, in church to, to have picked up what is that word uh, technically translated. God breathed. God breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, that, that's probably not the first thing we think of when we think of the word inspired right. in our context, in, in, yes, our, I mean, in our culture. We inspire our children. Sure we do. Well, we hope to, anyway. But yes. <laughs> or reading yeah. a good book that inspires us that's yeah. not inspired by right. the, yeah. these, these standards. Yeah. But God-breathed. So now when we're looking at scripture and saying all scripture is God-breathed, we, we have another testimony that there are several places where Scripture testifies to its inspiration. And it says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. How did God inspire? I, I think we've already mentioned in this class, by inspiration, and, and Mark, you probably are the one that said this, it's not of man. It's of God. But to to get our, our minds around the process of that is another tricky little thing. 
so you can see on the notes you handed out there, we have uh, some, some possibilities, some choices. Uh, there are some that believe inspiration means God dictated it. God spoke word for word. Every word that is written was the word God spoke to them. And the question mark, dictation, is that what we mean by inspiration? Second selection, limited inspiration. Uh, in other words, by inspired, do we mean that God moved upon men and gave them concepts and said, I'll leave it up to you how you express this. But as long as you get the concept, you've got some latitude here. I tend to think that the writers were unwitting participants. That at the time they wrote it, it wasn't like you know, you know, the Joseph Smith and Mormonism. That you know, his testimony is that he got this directly from God, verbatim, word for word. That wasn't what it was with the the writers of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. These were things that were they were recording um, that. Unknowns to them, God was putting into them what needed to be. You know, I, I guess I can't explain any better than that. They, it, it, you know, it's they, a little they, elusive, they, they, were, they were not. They were not fully comprehending that what they were writing was going to be saved uh, for eternity. Well, the, no, and, they probably and, didn't realize how enduring their yeah. their writings would be. Mm -hmm. Right. But don't you think they probably sensed? something bigger than themselves moving upon them to write under the power of inspiration? Yeah, I mean, you look at Paul's letters. Um, he, was, he was authoritative in those letters because he, you know, he was, was instructing fledgling churches, mm -hmm. um, fledgling Christians, you know, that they needed to be uh, reproved, they needed correction, they needed to to understand doctrine, those kinds of things. You look at the Old Testament, the, 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 the major prophets uh, were inspired. They knew they were prophets of God. Uh, a lot of what they recorded was not necessarily prophecy, but it was history. Okay. Yeah. Is, is any, any parts of the Bible are dictated? Uh, Jeremiah dictated the Baruch. Okay. But that, you know, that, that, but that was... But you mean dictated by God yes. to the, the person doing the writing. Yes. Ten Commandments. <laughs> well, there, there's an obvious one right yeah. there. So there are small parts, but we would not want to say that we believe the entire Bible, the inspired scriptures, mm -hmm. are all dictated word right. for word by mm -hmm. God. But we do know the parts were, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, especially the, the example of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And the limited inspiration, uh, does he express concepts? Well, that sounds plausible, except... The reason that that theory exists, it is a, it, it's a way of allowing for man-made errors. And uh, it purports to protect the doctrinal purity of the, inscriptures, uh, of the scriptures by inspiration or, or superintendence, uh, but allows for errors uh, that they struggle with. But there's, a, there's another one here. It's called verbal plenary inspiration. And it literally means every word and all the content. So... Verbal implies that every word is not dictated, but every word is inspired. 
the superintendency of the Holy Spirit over this made sure that the wrong word was never chosen. It could have been multiple words that would have fit, but there was many words that would not fit. And him overseeing this made sure that every word was sufficient to convey the message. So it was very meticulous as God inspired men to write men to write that the proper words were selected at the time. Uh, so verbal comes down to the words that were used were good words. Nothing can be lost because of the choice of words. Plenary uh, refers to the entirety of the Bible, and that is all the information in the Bible, uh, whether it be history or science, all of it is inspired and accurate, though we understand it's not all comprehensive. What the Bible does have to say about things that pertain to science, it doesn't purport to be exhaustive on the subject. But what part it does cover is accurate. Uh, so with verbal and plenary, we, get, we have these double guns here uh, that everything about the Bible is accurate, though it may not be exhaustive on all subjects it touches on. It might be share history, and history is accurate, but it doesn't share all history. And this allows for the writers to be able to express themselves and their personality. You can see the personality of the different writers coming through. Uh, Isaiah has a different style of writing than Jeremiah did. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Paul had a style of writing that differs from uh, the epistles of John or Peter. Uh, but it does not allow for any errors or any deviation from, from the specific message of God that he desires to convey to the readers. And, of course, this theory applies only to the original autographs. Now, what do I mean when I say autographs? Mm -hmm. <coughs> the, the, the first edition. <laughs> original edition. Yeah. 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 The, the very document that mm -hmm. was written down mm -hmm. right. uh, is uh, inspired mm -hmm. and without error. Mm -hmm. yeah. The argument is what? Mm -hmm. We don't have any of those. How do you know? Right. Mm -hmm. So how can you prove that? But to believe anything other than that mm -hmm. is to allow for mistakes to be made uh, from which we then have copies, manuscripts, mm -hmm. that if, if the first one's in error, they're all in error, and we, we are compelled to believe that the autographs were inspired mm -hmm. and, and without error. So that kind of, in a nutshell, covers inspired as far as we can dare take it in the short time we have available to us right now. But uh, the second word is infallible. And here's a fun one to play around with as well. Uh, you may have heard people make a statement about the Bible. They may say, I believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. That, that was in our doctrinal, doctrinal statement. Mm -hmm. You might hear somebody say, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Did they use synonyms here? Are they saying the same thing? Do they even know what they're saying? Are they parroting what they heard somebody else say? You know, there's, there is theological debate about infallibility versus inerrancy. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, if you go to the Assemblies of God website, uh, ag.org, and see at the top there's a, a menu that says Beliefs. 
and then under that there's uh, position papers and you click on position papers and it'll take you to an alphabetical listing of position papers and you go down to the eyes and it says the inerrancy of scripture and pull up that and read it their position paper is entitled the inerrancy of scripture mm -hmm. so you see that they they are almost using those interchangeably but they admit there's a shade of difference in from their perspective mm -hmm. and I quote we define inerrancy as meaning exempt from error and infallibility as a near synonym meaning incapable of error or very certain if there's a difference in the shade of meaning between the two terms inerrancy emphasizes the truthfulness of scripture infallibility emphasizes the trustworthiness of scripture now we're splitting hairs what's the difference between the truthfulness of it and the trustworthiness of it but I think there there is a definite enough difference for for us to be able to define that. So what would you say is the difference between the, the uh, uh, truthfulness and the trustworthiness? Between infallibility and inerrancy. Um, infallibility, I, I think, means as far as um, using it for doctrine and for the things we use it for, it is right on. As far as inerrancy means that every single I is dotted every comma, every period, every fact in there is true regardless of whether this has anything to do with with doctrine or not. That's why I would look at the two. Is that the, okay. yeah, the, the thing that comes to my mind is um, the inerrancy part or the truthfulness part is that I can read it and what and and what it is saying is true. There's no mistakes in it. The infallible or trustworthiness part is saying, I can believe what it says, and I can make application in my life without fear. Mark has uh, nailed the other one on this by saying, now, is this book trustworthy, or is it going to lead me astray? Mm -hmm. If I trust in it, is it going to mess me up and mm -hmm. get me all confused? No, it's trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So not only is it accurate and true and inspired, but you can rely on it. So that's a good, I think, uh, definition and clar uh, clarification of the two terms. Given the synonymous relationship of the two terms from the Son of God's point of view, the infallibility of the Scripture infers that the original autographs, in the original autographs, there were no factual or revelational, those are two words that's very important, there were no factual or revelational errors. In other words, if this was revealed from God, if it was inspired, they didn't, they didn't get a bad signal. They got the clear message. What was revealed to them was revealed accurately. Ezekiel didn't write down errors in trying to describe the vision he had. It was very accurately mm -hmm. recorded. We may make errors in interpreting that, mm -hmm. but it was given without error. So what about translations? You know, it's it's pretty popular. The number, I think, is 144. Uh, is a pretty popular number of contradictions that people have assembled uh, that they have found in the Bible. It's always the skeptics that do this. There are 144 contradictions in the Bible. And, of course, things go viral on the Internet, you know. 
and uh, they they start pointing out things that to them mm-hmm. seem to be contradictory. And we have our work cut out for us for a non-believing, a skeptical world that doesn't want to believe the Bible, that wants to buy into this stuff, saying, well, I know somebody that knows somebody that says there's 144 contradictions in that. You cannot trust it. So what do we do about these translations when we're going around spouting off the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is infallible? There was been concern with you know, the fact that you know, we don't have the original writings. We have copies of copies of copies. Um, you know, a lot of things handed down and, and rewritten by scribes, not with a, a Xerox or anything like that, or, or you know, scanned into a computer and, and kept there for all time. You know, original documents died. Copies were made and handed down and handed down and handed down. So, you know, when uh, the King James was written, it, it had the best manuscripts it had at that point in time, other translations as well, and there's always the concern with how does this compare with the originals? We don't, we'll never know. Then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which, yeah, the Dead Sea those Scrolls. Those were, were not the originals, but it was copies that were uh, that were written but, about the time of Christ. Much older than anything else we had. Yeah, and they compared what we had and, and, tr- and translated into the Bibles we've got today to those, and they were, for all practical purposes, exactly this. Not exactly, word, but they were the same. There was nothing lost. Nothing lost. It, it, as far as... Um, the essential message. The essential message, yeah. I mean, there's these things. I mean, you look at... Copyist look, mistakes. Yeah. Sometimes you, the copyists took too much liberty and yeah. threw in their own side notes. They were, <laughs> and sometimes substituted their side notes for the, yeah, for the passage. They were thinking, even the King James has some scribe notes that were that have actually verse numbers in in, in John with John chapter 5 with uh, was it 5 or the the, the 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 paralytic at the pool of Bethesda is that chapter 5 or is that 4 wherever it is anyway there's a couple of verses there that describe you know when the, when the waters were stirred and a scribe put in a in a note that why these waters were stirred and what it meant that the angel an angel was there and whatever have you that was put into the King James and it shouldn't have been but who cares? It doesn't make. It doesn't change anything. The same thing with uh, Acts chapter uh, chapter eight when when Philip went on the Ethiopian um, when he disappeared. There's a couple extra verses there to explain what happened to him or supposedly what happened. The scribes notes. I mean, you look at the NIV. It takes eight thirty seven and goes jumps right to forty. It skips two verses and you wonder what's going on. Well, it's because those two verses were in were. Uh, put in the King James because of a scribe's note. Yes, yes, the scribe's so did. But no, monkey with things none sometimes. of that stuff. <laughs> none of that stuff ever changed the message. And uh, the, yeah, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls put our mind at ease about yeah. a lot of these things. How reliable were the manuscripts through the ages? <clears throat> and they're glad to find those and glad to, to make whatever corrections, uh, transcribing corrections should be made. Uh, but they are thrilled to find the essence of the message is intact. So uh, that's one thing that we can be thankful for the experts who study uh, existing manuscripts uh, and use them as a reference point for our translations. So oftentimes when you hear people talk about uh, contradictions in the Bible, they are, they are also referring to contradictions found in translations. You get these King uh, James nuts that just drive me crazy. Yeah, the King James only crowd. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, yeah. And it's good enough for John the Baptist, it's good enough for me. Well, do you remember when I came and tried out for our church, and we had question and answer session, and one man stood up, and it was, was the King James, James issue. Gary? Was no, it, Gary? it wasn't Gary. It was Cowboy. <laughs> remember Cowboy? Yeah. He stood up, well, I want to know which version of the Bible you Cowboys. use. Do you use King James only? Reggie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Reg, yeah Reggie Peltier. Yeah. 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 Gary was kind of a, a, a King James Yes, he was. Guy. Gary is yeah. very much King James. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I guess the one thing that people don't consider when they talk about the King James being the, the best and the only translation is what are the Russians going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah. poor French what people. The, what are the poor French people? They don't read <laughs> yeah. English. You know? yeah. There are so many trends Latin. Yeah. Well, I think the thing was, it, it survived. You know, It was written in 1611 and there were no other English translations. <laughs> right, so nothing that was really as well known well, there, as there, there, trusted there were, as the King James. And we started writing it was the most ambitious project yeah. to date. There were others yeah. that took it upon themselves at that time to make their own translations. But this was the most ambitious endeavor at that time. And based on the scrolls they had available, they did what they could. With the Revelation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it kind of swept uh, much of the work of the King James aside. And so we've got a whole new batch to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And New American Standard Bible right. uh, probably does a much better job of being uh, real, uh, transliteration. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, faithful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To uh, to translating the original language, which makes it a little stiff to read, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, but corrects a lot of the mm -hmm. a lot of mistakes contained in the King James. So we 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 understand translations. Yeah. There was now, a, yeah, <clears throat> came along later. And then you started having paraphrases, which you know the paraphrases. What's wrong with the paraphrase? It's 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 a it's it's man it's 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 taking it's you're not even looking at the at the at the at the uh, the original writings. You're taking a translation and just paraphrasing into what we would now. So it, which it, is a lot what we do yeah, when we sit around as, and talk as a whole as a whole the, the paraphrase, <laughs> as my sermon yeah. as a, as as a whole the paraphrases are good. But if you want if you want to just take one one verse, you could get yourself really in trouble yes, you by, could. by by looking at a paragraph. So they're they're good to have on the side. Yeah. Just to, as though you're bouncing it off somebody say, well, what's it say to you? And what's this say what's this man that wrote this paraphrase, what's it saying to him? But it certainly is not on the same par with right. Bibles who uh, which which are uh, purporting to actually make a translation. Yeah. NIV is kind of a hybrid. <laughs> uh, they're mm -hmm. a translation uh, to a certain degree. They, they also become a paraphrase at times. And, and they also become uh, uh, somewhat slanted mm -hmm. doctrinally, forcing this to be worded in such a fashion to say what they want it to say. Okay, the final word is authoritative. We've got inspired, God-breathed, inspiration of the word totally emanating from God. And people in their own styles, and their own personalities, then writing from that power of inspiration. And then authoritative, uh, which would be very simple. Uh, it shouldn't take long to nail down authoritative, uh, except there's two aspects of authoritative. One, uh, I think Ambie's the one that referred to this a little while ago, uh, the, the Bible being a, uh, a book of authority. Paul wrote with authority, I think is what you said. Yeah. He wrote with authority because... Uh, 
he was he knew that uh, he was inspired by God, so he had this authority. So that's a, a sense in which we can understand the Bible is authoritative. Uh, it's a reliable source of truth upon which we can base our Christianity. Uh, so <clears throat> consider the the journey of the Bible through the centuries. Take Paul's letters to the churches. He wrote to a specific audience. Yet his words were deemed inspired and worthy of preservation for all ages. And this is what we touched on a little bit a while ago when we were talking about, did they have any idea how far this was going to go? If you think just of Paul and, you know, why he was called to do what he, what he, what he did as a missionary to, to all the Gentile areas and writing these letters to, to all these Gentile churches, you know, he came from a background where he was, he was you know, one of the, the utmost of Pharisees. He knew... Judaism in and out. He knew it like the back of his hand. He knew he knew all that stuff. And what did he have to contend with in all these Gentile churches was the 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 Jewish faction coming in and saying, "Hey, you can't do this because you're not keeping the old laws and all that kind of stuff." And how many times he encountered that? And he says, "Hey, you know, I know. You know, he was authoritative to even the Jews mm -hmm. as well as the Gentiles." Yes. So. Who, who better to, to, to do what he did and, and to write what he wrote in the New Testament? Right. Yeah. So the, the Bible, coming from, let's say, for instance, from Paul, uh, his, his words as he wrote these letters and they were passed around from church to church to read, they were deemed to be very inspired and, and worthy of, of preservation. Then they came to be compiled into what we know as a Bible, uh, which we revere as sacred and authoritative. Yet during the medieval period, the people lost their deep reverence for the scripture and, and the Bible became kind of just a source of disputations more than anything else. They didn't, didn't hold that deep reverence during that period of time. Then came the reformers and they challenged them to go back to the reverence for the word of God and they placed this renewed emphasis on the Bible. And if they were going to reform the church and Christianity and the world, they needed a touchstone to be able to do this. They needed a reliable source of authority to change the world. And so they began to look upon the scriptures once again as a book of authority that would enable them to uh, reform what was wrong with the church and to, and to reach the world. And they couldn't do that with a, a Bible that was held in the, in the kind of uh, uh, standard that it was typically being held. It's just a book. Uh, you want to have a good argument? Let's read the Bible. Argue about it. They had to come to a conclusion. This was authoritative. Mm -hmm. Without dispute. This governs our life. So many reformers would literally be willing to risk their reputation and their very life for what they believed uh, would be the power and the strength uh, of their convictions in the authority of Scripture, grounded in the authority of Scripture. They couldn't have stood up to the kind of persecution that they endured had they not believed in the authority of God's Word. Mm -hmm. uh, they would back down, except that they believed in their heart, but God's Word says, and I stand by that. And they would go to death because of that conviction. Now, <clears throat> The, the first aspect of authority, then, is this reliable source of truth upon which we can base our Christianity. But there's a second aspect of authority, and that is uh, it's a means by which God's authority can be expressed 
through our life. The Bible is authoritative in as much as we live out the Bible and become the expression of God's authority here on earth. So N.T. Wright has this to say. I find it a very interesting quote. The authority of Scripture must be understood within the context of God's authority, of which it is both a witness and perhaps more importantly, a vehicle. Now we covered the part about the Bible is a witness of God's authority, but it's a vehicle of God's authority. And then Wright offers this summary. He says, the authority of Scripture is shorthand expression for God's authority exercised somehow through Scripture. Therefore, the Bible is more than just a book to be obeyed. It's a book by which God's authority is expressed through the actions of the believers. As we live this out, we are living out the authority of God. And by living out the Word, we're living in and ministering in the authority of God's Word, which gives us confidence. So the summary of what we've covered tonight is these key terms, the inspiration, the infallibility, and the inerrancy together, and the authority of the Word of God. They're like a tripod, mm -hmm. and they are the support system for our doctrinal statement. The authority of God's Word is validated by its divine inspiration. The inspiration of the Word of God ensures the infallibility. And this tripod is the foundation and the base and the structure and the strength of our belief system on the Word of God. The Bible is the inspired and only infallible and authoritative Word of God. <laughs> Probably a serious sermons on that. Yes. But you know, you think basically 